like, oh, I'm just existing because of this identity or that identity or this politician. Now it's that politician or it's this. You know, all of these things, these are just horrible substitutes for, for knowing your place in the cosmos. Welcome back to Mind Matters. Last week in our discussion on the Holy Grail, I pointed out that all of the main Grail stories were composed over around a 50-year period from 1180 to 1230. And around that time, we mentioned what was going on, for example, the cathedral building, that uh, the, the Gothic architecture that sprung up around that time, and also that the, it was a time of intense activity in Sufism. So today we're going to get into a bit about Sufism, what it is, and some of its, um, some of the Sufis from around that time and what the, some of the things they were saying, one of whom was, is known as Ibn al-Arabi. His name is longer than that, but... Uh, that's what we'll refer to him as. I've heard it pronounced either Arabi or Arabi, so we might fluctuate between the two. Um, Arabi was born in 1165 and died in 1240. Again, right around the time of the Holy Grail stories up in France, he was actually Spanish, so he was born um, just south of where all that Grail activity was going on. And he's got a bit of an interesting story. He apparently... Um, experienced what is called an opening or an unveiling. This is kind of like a mystical experience where kind of the barriers between the the human material realm and the divine realm kind of blast wide open, and he experienced uh, like an intense vision at the age of like 12 or 13. Apparently that's when he, um, that's when he experienced this, and th throughout the rest of his life he experienced more of these visions and openings, but in that first one that was the thing that kind of like blew his, blew his mind wide open, and for the rest of his career he basically, all, all of the things that he wrote, all of the vast numbers of books that he wrote were attempts to put into words what he experienced in that first vision, in addition to the stuff that he experienced in the, you know, his, his mystical experiences for the rest of his life. And just to get an idea of how prolific this guy was, his main work, which is called the Meccan Openings, is by, from what I can tell, in like a critical, edi edi critical edition that was published of it, it was something like 37 volumes, around 17,000 pages. And that was just one of his works. Of course, not all of his works were that long, but uh, you know, some were quite short, maybe 100 pages, but... It just gives some idea of the like how prolific he was in his writing. He wrote hundreds of works. Um, I think that I think there are something like four hundred that are still available, and he wrote maybe like eight hundred different unique works over his life. And he was kind of an expert of all of the like the entire Islamic tradition of that period of time, whether jurisprudence or philosophy or Sufism which is the kind of mystical branch, the inner knowledge of the Quran, the inner knowledge and the practice of um, that kind of inner spirituality. So we'll be talking a bit about that, and maybe also, well, I'm going to be bringing up some stuff about Rumi, too. Rumi is probably the most famous um, Sufi in the Western world through his poetry. You can find all kinds of um, books in the you know, spirituality sections of, or poetry sections of bookstores on Rumi and his poetry. He was 
born in 1205 and died in 1273. So he's basically a generation younger than um, Ibn Arabi. And again, famous for his poetry. And he had an interesting life too. Um, He had a connection to Arabi through one of his pupils, who was, I believe, the stepson of Al-Arabi. And so while Arabi wrote all kinds of like in-depth, arcane, difficult-to-understand theory on practically every subject imaginable, Rumi was a poet, and so he kind of, he he expressed the things the, he expressed these mystical experiences, as they call them, states in Sufism, through these poems. And then later in life, he started composing a series of more didactic poems to kind of give an introduction to the to to Sufism. And so the his two main works are divided between those two. One, the poems that are kind of describing each individual spiritual experience that, that Rumi himself had, and then more of a teaching, like more like a teaching guide, but not very systematic. It was kind of still poetry, so it's still kind of de- delivered in, in an artful form. So those are probably the two. I don't know if we'll be talking about any other Sufis, but we'll just see see where it goes from there. So maybe to start out with um, Sufism, we want to know what that really is. And so I don't know if either of you guys have any um, maybe anything personal to share, like how you first found out about Sufism, or if you would just want to launch into, um, you know, a starting point for what it actually is. Anything? Well, <clears throat> um, I can definitely not give a definitive answer on that, but I can, def- I can, you know, just hazard an attempt to to explain what I understand Sufism's role to be, at least in the Islamic world um, back in what the 12th century. And the kind of the role that Ibn Arabi uh, played, uh, because you know, for him, I don't even. I was listening to an interview with William Chittick, and he said that he never that uh, Ibn Arabi never uh, called himself a, a Sufi. Like he never really considered himself anything besides someone who was trying to perfect um, man's inner nature, and so that the. The things that he wrote about and he discussed and he investigated and the, you know the visions that he had were all uh, they were all directed towards um, bringing an awareness of God and the self into your into his life and into the lives of you know all the people around him and so you know it was always deeply rooted in the Islamic tradition and yet. Uh, for the you know for the Sufis in general and, and in that period of time, from what I understand, is that there were it was considered to be two main branches of knowledge, and that the one branch of knowledge was uh, the the kind of knowledge that just has transferred over generations and it's very practical, um, you know the sciences and you know just the down to earth knowledge. But that um, in the Sufi tradition, this uh, this branch, this way of, of knowing the world, you know, through the intellect, you know, science, and you know, dip, all the whatever kind of methods that are used, was um, only uh, it was it was something that was to be used only by necessity. You know, it's like only if you need this to complete a project of some kind or to live well that this is a, a, 
a body of knowledge that's worth investigating. But the other body of knowledge that was much more important to investigate was the um, was the was God, mm-hmm. and in every dimension, and that was the big thing that I think even Al Rabi did was he he saw God. And he saw, like, the anatomy of God, and then he went and he wrote out the anatomy of God, and he used a a vocabulary that obviously we don't have today, you know, a vocabulary of faith that is kind of strange and challenging to read, because, you know, it's it's a romance. It's a romance between man and God, between your, you and yourself, and it's, um, in many ways, it's, it's, like, it's challenging because... Our, you know, I think in the modern world, it is we we're really rather faithless in those terms. We put all of our faith into transmitted information. That's mm-hmm. knowledge that's transmitted, you know, father to son, you know, through universities, through colleges, through professional careers and papers and journals. And yet, the direct experience in the heart of love of God of understanding what it means to say that God is all-merciful and that there is no God but God, and to discuss things like uh, the nature of being and the oneness of being in the cosmos, to understand, you know, to, to seek and to, to investigate through um, faculties that aren't, you know, just purely eyeballs and brains, you know, it's to understand on a deep personal level what it means to be um, in this universe and mm-hmm. to be a part of this, all of these myriad possibilities of what God is or and what God isn't, and to understand that there, you know, that you're always walking a tightrope because, you know, it's, you know, it's not just blind faith, but it's an understanding that God is and God isn't at the same time, that there is, that this is God and this is not God, and that God is all-merciful and God is tyrannical, that there are these different faces of God, and to understand what that means and how you can, um, how to make any sense of any of it. You know, what does it, what is God? You know, this, this kind of answer, this question, um, I think is, is, uh, is Ibn al-Arabi's uh, work, it's his life work, is to understand and to transmit, you know, for us so that we can take that information and we can apply it ourselves and seek out the answer for ourselves, because that's always going to be a unique and very personal understanding that you're not going to get um, tested on it in, you know, college. You're, you're not going to get an answer. You're not going to find the answer in a book. But um, through the heart and through the purification of the heart, there's some hope that we can understand. Yeah, and uh, that distinction that you made, Corey, between the transmitted teachings, which is called the uh, the takthir, uh, next to the kind of knowledge that comes from intellectual understanding and, and development of the self as relates to one's relationship to God, is called the Tawhid, probably not pronouncing either of those terms correctly, uh, but that's a real biggie because uh, William Chittick, who we'll be referencing a lot today because he is probably one of the premier uh, professors and uh, and students of Sufism and, um, and ancient uh, Islamism, uh, he, he is explaining 
um, especially through this book, which is called Science of the Cosmos, Science of the Soul, uh, he is bringing to us in his best understanding of what uh, Sufism really was intended to do um, and looks at it in terms of what uh, Islamism has become in this modern world. Uh, and he's, he's quite critical. Uh, he makes mention of the fact that there is a, a sense of a dogmatism and appeal to authority and uh, ideological uh, influence that gets very far away from the, the types of thinking that Sufism was meant to induce in the practitioner which was the development of the self, which was the development of one's own personal connection to the real, to God, to the hierarchy of the universe that we would seem to take for granted in, in today's versions of, of religion. And you can apply this to all sorts of modern, secularized, dumbed-down, uh, dogmatized versions of you know, the world's great religions. So, one of those definitions, uh, Tahid, uh, is explained in his book. He writes, All reality is unified in its principle. Everything in the universe comes from God and returns to God, and everything is utterly and absolutely dependent upon God, here and now, always and forever, in every time and in every place. And his point is that, you know, Sufism has been called this kind of mystical tradition or religion. It's been sort of denigrated and poo-pooed as a new age version of religion. Oh, you're a Sufi, that, that type of thing. But his point is, no, there is a, an intellectual tradition deep in Sufism that is being encouraged in the practitioner that doesn't take any of the the writings in in any of the great works uh, in the Quran in in the other texts for granted there is a, a a constant imploring that one should question these things that if anything they should be a point of departure for more questions and and it's through that questioning through the development of the fatir or or this kind of deep soul intellect that we come to have this direct understanding of God through knowledge of ourselves because God is in us. We are a part of the macrocosm and a part of the hierarchy and to lose sight of ourselves within this cosmology is, is to lose sight of, of what is real. Well, that gets, that gets back to something Corey was saying about the, um, well, the transmitted knowledge and the, the the real knowledge. You know, that comes back to the real. Um, the Sufis, in particular, Rumi, didn't didn't like mainstream philosophy very much, or at least, um, well, particularly Arabi and Rumi. That there was kind of a difference between the kind of, um, how to put it, worldly philosophizing and the inner truth of religion. So, in one of his poems, Rumi writes, 
Thy life has gone to waste in the consideration of logical predicate and subject. Thy life, devoid of spiritual insight, has gone in study of what has been received by hearsay. Every proof, logical proof, that is without a spiritual result and effect is in vain. Consider the final result of thyself. Basically saying, I mean, you could apply this to any kind of, any academic today, living today, if you just look at academia, um, well, what's the result of your knowledge? Look at yourself. You know, are you a particularly great human being? Well, they might think so, but in in reality, they're not. They're just as 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 great as their intellects are and as great as their intellectual achievements might be to the world, they are usually often just as mediocre human beings as everyone else. Um, nothing great to distinguish them on the kind of soul level, on the level of their character, or on the level of their spiritual development, however, however, however we want to define that. So Chittick writes, and this is in his book, The Sufi Doctrine of Rumi, it's got pictures in it, so it's nice. Um, he <laughs> says, well, first one other quote from Rumi. The great scholars of the age split hairs on all manner of sciences. They know perfectly and have a complete comprehension of those matters which do not concern them. But as for what is truly of moment and touches a man more closely than all else, namely his own self, this your great scholar does not know. So then Chittick writes, Man must know himself in order that he may, in order that he can escape from himself. All other knowledge is worthless. Then he quotes Rumi once more: "Make a journey out of self into your real self, O master. For by such a journey, earth becomes a quarry of gold." So there's this reading the Sufis, in particular these two, uh, Rumi and Al Arabi, they often remind me of Gurdjieff, naturally, because, well, there's a whole, there's a whole hypothesis that Gurdjieff um, learned something or other from Sufi traditions in Central Asia. And there are a lot of points of similarity between the two practices and doctrines, and one of which is this, um, this focus on what is actually practical and useful, there's probably a better word for that, for the actual person in what they come to know. Because you can learn a whole bunch of facts about anything and, like I said, still remain a kind of a non-entity, uh, a rather useless human being. There's, But the, the knowledge that seems to matter the most, and this is what Gurdjieff focused on too, was self-knowledge and what to actually do in order to transform. And Chittick actually defines the what he calls Sufi psychology, keeping in mind by that by psychology, he's including the entire psyche, which is like the soul, not the psyche as reduced by modern psychologists, kind of the purely um, like behaviorist, mechanical, low-level self, um, like the, the nafs or the flesh in, uh, in the Sufi terminology. Let me just comment yeah. on something you said, Harrison, because uh, there is a lot of Gurdjieff here, and as well as Zoroaster and Apostle Paul, and that's again, and I think we've been saying some of these things in the past few shows, there is this overlap or seeing the same picture from these perspectives that are shared that um, that just compound the truth of looking at the relationship between the individual self and 
the cosmology of the universe, one's relationship to uh, metaphysics and, and the rest of the world uh, in its deepest sense. And just getting back to that point um, about Gurdjieff's being so influenced by some of this, there's this passage here which reminded me quite a lot of Gurdjieff's idea of bankruptcy, bankruptcy which is this idea that we have to uh, die to all of the uh, selfish, egocentric, self-centered uh, tendencies that, that we have. Chittick writes, the cosmos is animated by two simultaneous movements. First is the centrifugal movement away from the source. Second, the centripetal movement toward the source. These are what the philosophical tradition commonly called al-mabda, while ma'ad, the origin of the return. The Sufis often use the expression al-qas, al-nazu'ul, al-nuzuli, and al-qas, al-su'udi, the descending arc and the ascending arc. The issues discussed are cosmogenesis and eschatology. When addressing the fact that all things naturally and necessarily go back to their origin, the tradition also discusses the uniquely human privilege of voluntarily returning to God. Freely choosing to return is precisely the raison d'etre of realization, and realization is another name for voluntary return, or in Sufi language, the voluntary return provides the means to, quote, die before you die. So, so there is the sense that there is a, a free will decision here to become part of what might be a, an ascending movement towards God or a descending movement away from the human self, away from God. Uh, but to go to ascend would require that one relinquish those things, as in the, bankrupt the bankruptcy that was mentioned earlier, a la Gurdjieff. So I think Gurdjieff put these ideas in his own terms and, and came up with his own ideas for how to express and convey them. But, you know, when we read In Search of the Miraculous and, and the, the rays of creation, uh, there is this strong connection, I feel, to these two forces, centrifugal and centripetal as well, and, and the free will choice to become a part of something that is either greater or lesser than ourselves and our yeah. potential. Yeah, that that gets back to this idea of the, the transmitted knowledge and what's transmitted and what's received. Um, because, well, in there's another form of Another form of transmission, in addition to just the transmission of normal, like worldly knowledge, this was the point I was. Well, the point I was um, going to get to previously was just that in, like you mentioned, Elan, in the, in Paul's letters too, Paul has this kind of denigration of worldly knowledge and worldly wisdom, and that the true wisdom is that that comes from God. So you find the same same idea in Sufism. You probably you find it probably in the esoteric traditions of any religion. Um, or the inner traditions of, of any religion. And for the transmission of, of knowledge, like Ibn, Ar Ibn al-Arabi was, um, 
as Chittick puts it in one of his books, uh, Sufi Path, or what's it called? Yeah, Sufi Path, Sufi Path of Knowledge. Um, on the one hand, Arabi was this great kind of mystic or philosopher with all these inner experiences and relating all the kind of secret teachings. But on the, on the other hand, he was also a literalist. So he he argued that every you know every passage, every word in the Quran was like divinely inspired and the absolute truth. And it was just that. So you had to take it literally. But there was a hidden meaning that encompassed the, the literal meaning. So the part of the transmitted knowledge was the Quran, the things that the things that came down from tradition, and that kind of had to pre, had to be preserved. But then there was the 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 hidden meaning, the the inner meaning that would that could only be experienced and and truly known um, through oneself and through one's own um, like inner knowing. As opposed to just the the external knowing of just remembering facts or or something like that, and one of the things Chittick also points out is that Arabi talks about the the I think it's the hundred and twenty four thousand prophets. So from the time of Adam to the time of Muhammad, there were one hundred and twenty four thousand prophets, and they each received basically the divine word and put it in terms and in a language for the context and the people that could hear it. So naturally, in, in one time and place, the, the divine word would be given in this language for this people, and then it would take a different form here and there and here and there. Um, Al-Arabi only, of course, focused on the specifically Islamic context, because that was his culture, but at least there was this, um, there was this recognition of all these previous prophets you know, before Muhammad that presented this type of thing in a uh, in a necessarily non-islamic form this also has a resonance with the the fourth way as gurjev presents it and in that there is an idea of um, a tradition passed on through time from person to person um, like directly from and you, you could trace something back to its very source at the beginning and it has this direct line of transmission but there's also well, and there, and that is that is put into practice by the Sufis in the form of their Sufi orders and their their schools. Because whenever uh, a Sufi would gain kind of like the, the 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 grand like divine achievement, whenever like full spiritual realization, they would often start their own order. So that today we've got like I don't even know how many Sufi orders there are, but there are, if not dozens, then hundreds of them. Um, maybe dozens again, I don't know for sure, but so you, you've got like the Mevlevi order, order, which traces back to Rumi. You've got the Naqshbandi, um, you've got all kinds of ones. So you've got this direct transmission all within this one, um, system or one, if not system, this one, well, just tradition. And, but in, if you look at Gurdjieff's description of the fourth way, there's the same idea and there's the same tension between a tradition that's passed on in the same form to one that arises in a specific situation without necessarily any direct antecedent, without any direct line of transmission into the past. And you can see this in, if you take the ideas of, if you take what actually happens in this Sufi practice, which is this divine opening, then you can see that if that's part of human nature, to have this possibility of divine opening, then like with the 124,000 prophets, it can happen 
in any place at any time. So it will probably necessarily take a different form than it took in any previous example. So you've got all of these, potentially you've got all of these different forms of like the, the divine truth that spring up in different cultures at different times without necessarily any direct connection to, the, to each other, but which all perhaps express the same truth, perhaps just in a different form, in different clothing. And that's one of the ideas that is that comes across in um, some of what Chittick writes about um, Al-Arabi and Rumi is that the, this idea that there are um, there are three I don't know if they're what what we call the modes of let me check my notes modes of transmission or or just three aspects of Sufism yeah just the three main aspects of Sufism. Um, the way he describes it is that there is basically knowledge, works, and spiritual realiza- realization. So there's the knowledge, which is basically, this is the transmitted form, this is the, the original revelation of the Quran to Muhammad that is passed on. That's knowledge of the law. And then there's the works. This is what the Sufis would call the way. So this is the actual practice, that the, the actual spiritual practices that, uh, that a Sufi or a Muslim puts um, or puts themselves through and actually does. So you've got law, works, and then probably the most important to, or one of the most typical to Sufism is the third, spiritual realization, which is the truth. So you've got this, um, you've got this form, this the form that the knowledge takes, which is, in the case of Sufism, the Quran. And then there's the inner meaning that is discerned through the experience of the practitioner and through their own practice. So this would be meditative practices, contemplation. Um, in modern Sufi orders, for instance, they they you can you can you can look you can, you can look up the Sufi practices. They basically engage in certain types of prayer and meditation and, and dancing. Of course, um, Rumi started the the uh, whirling dervish um, thing, so that's where whirling dervishes come from, um, apparently, and. With the goal, so that would be like the way or the path is the actual practice, leading to the goal of spiritual realization, the realization of truth. And at that level, at the the level of spiritual realization, as Rumi puts it in some of his poetry, the that kind of negates the necessity now for the law and the way. Mm-hmm. Because once you've achieved the goal, you no longer need the path because you're already at your destination. And you, only, you no longer need the form, which is the law, because you embody the law. Um, as Chittick puts it, the Sufi becomes the doctrine at that point. So there's no need for the doctrine because you embody the doctrine in your very being. And the way you get there is through the, through the, the middle section, the works or the way, that is what would be the kind of the inner alchemy or climbing the ladder. These are two um, symbol systems or image or forms of imagery that the Sufis used that are that also show up in um, more like Western esotericism, like the ladder. That uh, that's in Hermeticism. That's in Gurdjieff too. The inner alchemy, of course, in Western alchemy, as well as um, again Gurdjieff too talks about alchemy. And there's, but to come back to 
the transmission aspect in Sufism, there is the necessity for a master to guide you through the process. So that's another tension that's also within the Gurdjieff system, because for Gurdjieff, um, he also says you, you need a teacher, you need a master. You can't climb the stairway on your own. You need someone to kind of show you the steps and act as um, act in place of the thing which is growing with growing within you um, to kind of get you past the hurdle that you wouldn't otherwise be able to um, to pass. And so you see the same thing in Sufi in Sufism: the need for a teacher or a master. But. So there, I just wanted to highlight that kind of tension, mm-hmm. both the, the need for a tradition and a, a line of transmission, but also the kind of the openness to this kind of um, lack of transmission that comes in this instance of kind of just pure divine revelation. And I think that's what might be behind the idea of the prophet, you know, a, a, a specially um, prepared individual, you know, Gurdjieff would, might call them messengers from above that don't that that's their purpose their purpose is to act as that anchor um that like incarnation of truth that doesn't necessarily need a transmission because they are the source of it and so of course sufis would argue that muhammad was the um the epitome you know the last the the, the last and greatest prophet and um you know other traditions will argue well, that they have the best prophet and it's like well no i've got the best prophet um but again just to to round that out there are some of the, of course, just some similar things in in Paul too um, about um, well, something that we haven't got into yet. Like the the whole idea of the fall and the interpretation of the fall is there um, in Sufism as well as Paul. Like and we like we discussed uh, several weeks ago in our discussion of uh, of that. Um, but also, um, yeah. Well, I'll leave it. I'll leave it there. We might get back to some some uh, correspondences to Paul a bit later on. So one of the ideas that Chittick tries to get across in his distillation of the importance of the Sufi teachings uh, is this kind of dichotomy or, or tension between all of the religious, um, ideas that would uh, compel a person to, as I was saying a little earlier, be dogmatic about religion and to not pay attention to one's own thoughts. And what Shittick says basically is that our thoughts are the kind of medium, are the substance, are the are very real things uh, that that we don't give enough credence to precisely because we're so immersed in material, superficial, ego-centered reality. So just going to read a portion here because it, it speaks to some of this really well. He says, Islamic forms of thinking take it for granted that God is the source of all reality. The universe and all things within it appear from God in stages just as light appears from the sun by degrees. The spiritual world, which the Koran calls the unseen, al-gayb, is the realm of life, awareness, and intelligence. The bodily world, which the Koran calls the visible, 
al-Shahada is the realm of death, unawareness, and unintelligence. The closer a creature is situated to God, the more immersed it is in the light of intelligence, consciousness, and thought. Angels and spirits who, in, who inhabit the unseen are vastly more intense in luminosity and intelligence than most inhabitants of the, visi- of the visible realm. Which reminds me a little bit of our afterlife show, because in that discussion, there was this idea that there are these various spheres of existence in the afterlife, where there are intelligences and beings of a wholly different physical nature that are, to varying degrees, living in environments that are more luminous than others. And, and and more sublime and less coarse than the lower spheres or or less coarse and luminescent than our sphere. So I thought that was an that was uh something that came up. In this way of looking at things, human beings who were placed on the earth to God's vicegerents, Khalifa, and I wonder if he means vice regents, are nothing but thought. Their awareness and consciousness determine their reality. Their thoughts mold their nature and shape their destiny. The great Persian poet Rumi, a true master of the intellectual tradition, reminds us of thought's primacy in his verses. Brother, you are this very thought. The rest of you is bones and fiber. If roses are your thought, you are a rose garden. If thorns, you are fuel for the furnace. If rose water, you will be sprinkled on the neck. If urine, you will be dumped in the pit. So there's there's a lot of wisdom in that. You are what you think. Uh, And that the world is made up of, of thoughts and the unseen and the generally unknowable precisely because we are caught up in our 3D physical existence where we lose sight of the materiality of thought and its its impact and its existence in the ether and and its connection to other people. We give out thoughts all the time. Sometimes we pick up on thoughts from others without even realizing it or sometimes realizing it. And there is a an attention that seems to be an importance here of thinking about what you're thinking about of metacognition of of knowing yourself through knowing your thoughts and of questioning your thoughts and that's just another really um pertinent part of the the intellectual tradition as uh, chidic presents it well, yeah, as I've been uh, reading uh, these, you know, these works, I've been continuously reminded of the show that we did on Epictetus, and his number one focus was, you know, you, the only thing that you can control are your thoughts. You know, that's that's the realm of the gods. In your thoughts, you are closer to the gods than you know than you're closer to anything else. And he, it, I just continued to be struck by um, how. Ibn al-Arabi seemed to be more just 
a more imaginative, like some, mm-hmm. like a, a an Epictetus with an extra faculty. Yeah. You know, he had um, he had an, uh, a faculty that Epictetus, for whatever reason, for I don't know why. I mean, he was obviously a brilliant philosopher, absolutely intelligent, just heads over heels over most other men. But then, in the same regard, Ibn Al Arabi is um, exponentially more intelligent. But it's not because he thought of all of these different things and logically deduced that there must be all these different forms, but it's because in some way and on some level and through some faculty, and he would probably say it's the imaginal imagination, the faculty of imagination, he, he saw these things. Mm-hmm. He saw the reality of, of being and the structure of being, and then he tried to describe that and put it on paper and, and deduce you know, different uh, conclusions that you can draw from, from this this reality that he saw and by doing so he was you know in many ways he was transducing a a knowledge um that you can't really you can't just uh just a normal guy go out there and like you know you're like if you're a naturalist and you spend all of your life studying um nature you're you're not going to come to this kind of a conclusion you know you're not going to um to understand the world of being but if you're someone like Ibn al-Arabi, and that's your job, is to understand the world of being, then you can become like a naturalist of, of that world. Mm-hmm. And you, uh, you, you know, it's obviously people will always argue that this is all just in somebody's imagination. This is all just make-believe and this and mm-hmm. that. And of course, you know, Ibn al-Arabi was facing the same kinds of things back then. And so we're, you know, it's, it's just a perennial complaint because there will always be people who don't have that faculty. And there will always be um, people who can delude themselves into believing they have that faculty or who want to delude others into believing they have that faculty because it's such a, um, it's so highly... Uh, subjective. It's mm-hmm. we just don't have access to these realms of information, and that's why you know it's we are a lot of us uh, like sheep. Yeah. You know, we're a lot like like sheep in that sense, and that we need uh, some sort of a trustworthy, you know, shamanic type figure that can structure and build a world. You know, and to and you want them to structure a world, a religious system, a universe that is as close to reality as possible. Um, and, you know, w- without that, you, the, the universe is, is chaos. You know, the, we forget, I think, how important individuals with this kind of ability are and how important it is to have a vocabulary of faith and to be able to understand the, you know, these basic drives that we have, the basic drive to exist, and to be able to understand that in a way that it's not just I'm just existing because of this career. Like, oh, I'm just existing because of this identity or that identity or this politician. Now it's that politician or it's this. You know, all of these things, these are just horrible substitutes for for knowing your place in the cosmos. Mm-hmm. They're horrible substitutes for, for being able to have a vocabulary of faith that says that you're, um, you're striving to be because that's the charge that God has given all of life on this planet yeah. that it's you know it's a sacred it's a sacred command and that we as humans we have a special place in this cosmos because we share in this mind this uni- this mind that as you were saying Elon it's it's so easy to forget that we have these this unique ability to think and to 
change our thoughts and to analyze our thoughts and then to thereby change our, our lives. We could radically change our lives and change the lives of everyone around us um, if we have if we if we have the right words, if we have if we have the right motivation, if we have the right meaning, and if we if we have uh, a the heart, right names. if we have a heart, yes, then the right names too. I mean, it's um, so many of us, like you said, where it's a world of death and confusion because all of these things are just muddled together. You know, there it's all kind of um, you know just a big kind of nullity because it's not sharply defined and and um, you know the the map I guess what yeah. you'd say the map of meaning is just is just off. So you think that you're going to you know the town across the way, but your map has you going to the opposite direction, and you just keep driving and driving and driving and wondering why you never got there. Well, it's because our maps are crap. They're yeah. They're just shoddy, and we we need um, we need one, yeah, for our time. And we're not going to get it by just going out and looking at the you know at the forests and the rain, and, you know, this and that. We're, we we need we need spiritual awareness and spiritual guidance. Mm-hmm. And uh, like you said, like a new vocabulary mm-hmm. um, to be able to to be able to know where we're at and where we're going, and coming back to the idea of these traditions and their, how they come into the world. Um, I think Gurdjieff provided that for like the, the 20th century, a new, a new vocabulary for this, um, this truth that this kind of inner truth that pops up throughout cultures and throughout history, but that loses its applicability to certain cultures and certain peoples and certain times. And sometimes the, the form, the form decays and becomes, um, you know, ineffectual, useless for for certain peoples to actually um, benefit from. So you, it needs to be reinvigorated every once in a while. And you spoke about the faculty, you know, the the faculty that Al Arabi had in particular, and that perhaps Epictetus didn't have. And one of the things about Al Arabi is that he described basically the stations and states of the Sufi path of the Sufi way. So these are the, the experiences that come, the states will be the, the kind of individual experiences. Um, what, what can be translated as like spiritual inrushings, um, the, of the, the, as a result of these openings. Um, so these are the kind of mystical experiences that can be experienced by, a or on the way. And then there, there are the stations. These are the virtues that are acquired and kind of retained, um, as I guess you could, you could say as one develops their character or grows in being or just develops spiritually. Um, and Al-Arabi basically gave warnings that all source, all divine inrushing in or all inrushings aren't from the same source. He, d- he divided them into four different sources, the divine. So from the very top, from the, from oneness, from the, you know, the, the absolute level of being, uh, spiritual, so that would be like from the spiritual realms. But then there are also two other sources: the ego itself, egocentrism, and satanic. Mm. So there are these different sources of inrushings. And Chittick points out that uh, if you look at a modern tradition like the the New Age, just new the the catch-all New Age community, there's no differentiation between the source of inrushings. It's just you have a great experience, and it's it's this mystical experience, and now you're you're um, what's J.P. Sears's phrase for it ultra spiritual right because you've had you you've you know it you've you've experienced the 
the, the divine inrushing of one sort or another. But but it's like you said, you're, you're like a babe in the woods. You don't know what what's going on. You don't know how to differentiate any of these things. That's again where the need for uh, a master, for a sheikh in the Sufi tradition or a, a teacher, is necessary to to help you discern because you don't know these things. You're like a beginner in mathematics. You don't know what's what. You need someone to kind of show you the ropes. Hopefully someone that knows what they're talking about, but you've got a whole whole bunch of charlatans and people you can't trust and people pretending they know something or people who think they know something and don't actually. So it is a it is a, a rough place to be in. It is a, a perilous um, a perilous path, a perilous time and place to be in where you don't have, or you know, we collectively don't have you know, someone we can just implicitly trust with this kind of thing because, um, partially because it is such a, um, well, it's so out, it's so at odds with our culture today. You know, it's not something that is, you know, taught in elementary school, for instance. It's just not part of our everyday life. Um, on that, I want to just bring bring it back to a few of the ideas that um, that come out particularly in Rumi. And this will tie back to the shows we did on Christianity, on Paul in particular. And there's this idea of that we mentioned already about self-knowledge, right? And the, the importance of self-knowledge. That's the only knowledge that actually matters. Um, but on the other hand, that isn't to say that all knowledge of external things or of cosmology or, well, um, not modern cosmology as in like astronomy, but but um, the the nature of reality and all that stuff. It's not to say that isn't important because like Rumi would say, I think that uh, that first facet of Sufism, knowledge or the law, um, which might include things like this, is that theory as opposed to practice. That theory is what provides the the kind of picture of where you're heading. Like you need a, you need a picture of the context in which you're acting in order to act properly. So part of self-knowledge will be to have the a proper framework in which to place yourself. You know, where where am I? How do I fit in the the grand scheme of things and what is my path through that kind of jungle? Um, you need both. But the the full realization, like the path that you are going towards is self-knowledge and what is self-knowledge well the part of the part of the spiritual realization is that um as gurdjieff would say and as rumi says too is of a realization of one's own um non-entity that you are really nothing that there is nothing special about you you are like you are the 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 most insignificant speck but on the other hand from another perspective you are all important because the true self, what you're, what you are actually trying to discover or in the process of coming to know, you find that the truth behind the true self is actually God. So by, by acquiring self-knowledge, you are actually acquiring knowledge of God Mm -hmm. because you are like this fractal, like holographic representation of God Mm -hmm. that you as the microcosm encompass all of that. So with, the, the the secrets within are or the, the the treasure within is illimitable it's unlimited because it is everything because on the uh, on the ultimate level through that connection of your own like spark of divinity you actually are god and that's the kind of the um 
the uh, controversial aspect of mysticism in general because well i'll read a quote from from rumi um well first chittick kind of introdu- introducing it <clears throat> um well first there's a quote um a quote from the quran uh, or it might be a, a hadith um let me find it it's on page 31 so this will be, give the context for what I'll read next. So this is God speaking. I was a hidden treasure, and I wanted to be known, so I created the world. So now, Chittick writes, Through the spiritual man, through the spiritual path, man awakens from his slumber and finds that he is not what he had thought himself to be. He is not that particular mode of consciousness with which he had identified himself. And man does not achieve anything by realizing union with God. Rather, he becomes what he had always been in his inmost nature. God is the real, and nothing can be outside his reality. So now he quotes Rumi. Take the famous utterance, I am God. Some men reckon it a great pretension, But I am God is in fact a great humility. The man who says, I am the servant of God, asserts that two exist, one himself and the other God. But he who says, I am God, has knotted himself, made himself nothing, and cast himself to the winds. He says, I am God. That is, I am not. He is all. Nothing has existence but God. I am pure non-entity. I am nothing. In this, the humility is greater. So this comes back to Tawhid, the, you know, there is no God but God. Or I guess that's one way of phrasing it. Is that the right way? Is it? It's, it's one so, of the yeah. So the, the, the unity of, of everything, everything is God. And in that, if we tie this back to some of our first shows that we did, um, where we talked about Whitehead and, and the, the, the the, the the different kind of theologies and ways of looking at the nature of God in in most Western religions, God is a transcendent being, you know, totally other. And for Sufi, for Sufis, that would be what they call shirk or associating with other gods, um, basically creating, basically saying that there is something that exists separate from God. Because if you have a transcendent God who is over and above creation, now you have. God separated from his creation. And that is, in essence, to set up a separate God, a separate, uh, univ- or a separate kind of absolute, whereas there is only one God. There is only one. So uh, the idea of this transcendent God removed from reality, removed from creation, is actually a form of um, idolatry, according to the Sufis. And, and it's not that God is purely imminent in creation, because that is to, to identify the the absolute or God with every individual part of creation, that's to set up a, an infinite number of gods at odds with each other, totally separate, having totally separate sources of power. So the, the Sufi tradition is actually in line with Whitehead's conception of God and Hartshorn, Whitehead's students, which is, you know, in the philosophical tradition called panentheism, that God is both transcendent and imminent, that God is within every part of creation and also transcendent above it. And there's a, a point where, um, 
where Chittick talks about this in relation to either Arabi or Rumi. I can't remember which. But um, he basically says... Um, well, there's a section. If you want to get the book, you know, just get the book and read it. It's, it's the <laughs> section on... Uh, well, I'll, maybe I'll read a bit. So this is on the chapter on God and the world. So he's talking about the talking about the transcendence or incomparability of God, that's the tanzi, and the imminence or resemblance, tazbi. So uh, Chidik writes, as Ibn Arabi often points out in his Fusus al-Hikam, the Quran summarizes these two points of view in the verse, nothing is like him, and he is the hearing, the seeing. Chidik, there is nothing like God, so he is absolutely transcendent. But inasmuch as a being hears or sees, it is from God that these attributes have come. Or to be more exact, it is God who in reality is seeing and hearing. This gets back to what I said about the, the spiritual realization being that the self, the true nature of the self, behind the false self that is kind of destroyed and dies in, in this spiritual death and rebirth, the true self is actually God himself, God itself. Um, so, and, and that previous quote from Rumi about I am God, that just reminded me of, well, there are a couple of things in there that remind me of the conversation we have had with Joseph Azizi in his book, where he talks about, first of all, the importance of the phrase I am in, in Gurdjieff, um, and especially his exercises. That was the, one of Gurdjieff's central ideas, I am. And that not only was that kind of a, almost a mantra for certain spiritual exercises, but it, it's, there's so much contained in that, in that statement. And I think, like Azizi said in the show, he quoted um, a recollection of Maurice Nichol that Gurdjieff had told him that behind real eye, which is kind of the goal of the Gurdjieff system, behind real eye lies God. So it's the same. It's the same concepts in in Sufism. The, dis, the the discovery of the real I to be able to really say I am, you know, I exist. I am. I am existing, is to say, well, the, the heretical statement I am God. But there's a but on the like Rumi says there is a, 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 a supreme humility about that statement by saying because what that really means is I my individual self am nothing. I'm a non-entity. The only thing that exists that has any real meaning is the the totality mm-hmm. is my is the source from which I come and which which from which all my faculties come um, so for the Sufis when when the real eye sees or hears it is actually God seeing or hearing and this is the thing the the big thing that ties back to the Apostle Paul where Paul is talking about the faith of Christ and mm-hmm. uh, and God's faith and God's dominion. And all of these properties of God, and like we discussed on the shows on that, when the way in which those things manifest is through humanity, is through us. So the kingdom of God is not some kingdom external to us that is that God's going to send this earthly representative and he's going to rule over us like a you know like a medieval king or something like that. No, it's God's dominion. The idea of how uh, of of just the the action of God, the work of God is manifested through 
us, you know, through people, through individuals. But in order for that to happen, there has to be this kind of destruction of the old self, of the, um, like the fallen self, the Adamic self. Mm-hmm. And we don't have time to get into it t- today, but there are all kinds of passages in this book in particular on the Sufi um, kind of interpretation of the fall, of Adam's fall, and how that relates to kind of the, the cosmos in general and why there exists this separation between God. Why is there a multiplicity? If God is one, why are there many things? Well, the, part of the answer is the quote that I said that, you know, I was a treasure hidden, you know, and I, and I created the world in order to, to discover it, in order to essentially know myself. And the idea of the fall of Adam and, the, and what that entailed, that was the identification with this separate self and the loss of the ability to, to see the, the true nature, that it was an identification with the, the separateness um, and a, a closing off of that vision, that vision of reality. And so the, the path forward, the, the path upward, is to regain that vision and like in, enriched through the, through the experience of climbing that path to then reintegrate um, with that... Uh, with the true self, you know, with the real self, what what you always, in fact, were, but had lost connection to and forgotten, in order, uh, basically, to remember yourself, you know, gain a true I and uh, and be able to say, "I am God." Maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe not. Um, but we've been going for an hour, so I think we will stop there. Any final words, guys? Any last words? No. Okay. I, I am God seems to be a good place to end <laughs> so, it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I'll just say that I'm not saying that. <laughs> <laughs> a direct quote. <laughs> so um, thanks for tuning in, everyone. Uh, we'll be returning probably to some Sufi stuff later on. So everyone take care. And uh, yeah, read some books. <laughs>